Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Floods kill at least 41 people in the DRC's capital Kinshasa and South Sudan women urged to form strong coalitions and alliances. In economics news, Zimbabweans rush to register for mobile money platform One Money and in sports news, UEFA president backs Russia to be good a host for Euro 2020. But first up the news with Anne Musa. SABC News independent and impartial from an african perspective a very good morning to you i'm ann musa protest against the united nations presence in the eastern drc have spread from the bola affected town of beni to other towns in the region over frustration among locals that blue helmets are failing to protect civilians reports suggest some eight people were killed late on sunday by fighters aligned to the allied democratic forces rebel group this follows reports of an earlier attack that claimed at least 13 lives un facilities in the region have been torched and looted the head of the un peacekeeping mission leila zurugi what is happening in beni is of course very disturbing we are facing challenges that it's very hard for a mission to uh, deal with because you have demonstration from people that are frustrated with uh, attacks from armed groups this area is the area affected by ebola this area uh, went through uh, hell for the last 20 years so the population paid a very high price you remember when we started the ebola it was also we faced a lot of resistance from the population and the attacks and we have a doctor that was killed benin has expelled the european union's ambassador over political interference a statement from the president's office describes ambassador oliver net as harmful while reiterating that the West African country had nothing against the EU it also states the ambassador constantly called on civil society to protest against the government benin is not the only african country to go down the path of expelling meddlesome diplomats rwanda burundi the democratic republic of congo and somalia have in the last few months thrown out ambassadors The Bloemfontein High Court in South Africa's Free State province has sentenced seven P- uh, police officers after they were found guilty of corruption. The officers were arrested in March 2017 for accepting bribes from Lesotho nationals who were crossing at Fixburg and Maphatswe border gates into South Africa. The six men were sentenced to 12 years imprisonment while one officer was sentenced to 6 years. Free State National Prosecuting Authority spokesperson Paladi Shuping has welcomed the sentence. 
Senior doctors in Zimbabwe have described the country's hospitals as a death trap. They say drugs and equipment recently purchased by the government turned out to be unusable. The doctors say the government is carrying out a silent genocide against their own people. The BBC's Shinganyoka reports. The statement is scathing. Senior doctors accuse the government of having no interest in solving the health sector crisis. For over two months, they have filled in for striking junior doctors, providing emergency services. But they say with shortages of bandages, syringes and substandard equipment, it's no longer safe to treat patients. The government has said they'll recruit medical staff from other organizations and outside the country and has continued with disciplinary hearings that have seen about 450 striking doctors fired. A 19-year-old volunteer firefighter in Australia where there's been an unprecedented outbreak of bushfires has been accused of arson. It's allegedly started seven fires in the state of New South Wales then joined efforts by the Rural Fire Service to tackle the blaze. The fire service describes the alleged acts as the ultimate betrayal to crews already under immense strain. Six people have died and over 650 homes have been lost in bushfires which have ravaged the east coast since. September. And finally, Iran says at least eight people, it says, were linked to the U.S. spy agency, the CIA, were arrested during the recent wave of street protests. State media said most of those being held were detained while they were taking part in what were described as riots. No evidence of their links to the CIA has ever been provided. Washington has yet to comment. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa. From an African perspective. At least 41 people have died in the Democratic Republic of Congo's capital, Kinshasa, after torrential rains on Monday, with some swept away by landslides. Authorities say three of the city's 26 districts were badly hit. Januel Bomweze has more from Kinshasa. People here in Kinshasa are busy morning after more than 41 people have died due to a heavy overnight rains that flooded this Democratic Republic of Congo's capital city. The flood has left several people homeless as more than 300 houses have gone in water and two bridges broken separating the roads and making it difficult for inhabitants to cross. Most of inhabitants have blamed the country's authorities who allow anarchy constructions and sell lands on dangerous sites. Golden Misabiko is a pro-environment activist living here in Kinshasa. Still uh, mourning their relatives who have been killed by this long rain that had been falling for long, long hours, killing uh, over 41 people. And the cause of this is not necessarily the rain. It is also the fact that the people have been building houses on the most dangerous places. When this long rain happened, it could only uh, 
create flood and create land flooding. The country is not properly run. The, the public services, the administrative services are poor. They allow people to build where they are not supposed to build. They allow people to build where environmentally uh, people should not be allowed to build. And also, the other thing that has to be raised here is uh, the fact people had been cutting trees around uh, uh, Kinshasa and in many other cities in Congo. And uh, because of that, this cutting of Adam's trees uh, down are creating this factor, this climate change phenomenon. And uh, because there is a climate change, the rains will become long and very violent. And also the floods will be seen, will be there, here and there. And according to this other inhabitant who didn't want to be named, the number of victims should even be higher than 50. The run killed many people. Till now we are making only research for knowing. Till now we have something like 40 or 50 people who died till now. But we are really disappointed and we are weeping together because those people who died are my brothers and there are Congolese people who died. It means as they had died like this, the government must take care of it and must know what is happening there. Because you have to understand, in a space uh, like just on the rain, um, region, many things, many problems, and people are dying like this, it's not really very well. That's why we are in the morning in our country. And indeed, uh, it's uh, three communes out of the 24 communes of uh, the DRC capital city, Kinshasa. Don't you think the mistake belongs to people who build uh, in Anashi? The fault uh, is returning to the government and the one who government this opportunity to build there. You know, when they are selling a compound, the fault is not for the one who is buying. The fault is to one who is selling the compound. Because if someone knows that my compound is in a bad place, in a bad condition, if not today or tomorrow, they're going to get some problems. It could do not well to sell it. That's why you see now a country we are weeping more, and the fault is returning only to the government. They have to take care and they have to call the person who are selling compounds in our country. Because there are some places in our country, if you're going to buy today, one year, two years, you're going to see the erosion. Before selling compound to someone, they have to call engineers, those one who got experience about the problem of compound and selling it in good conditions. That's why you are calling the government. Because there are some problems in our country, it depends on the chief of quarter. This is not the first time for Kinshasa to be in such a catastrophe. At least 50 other people were killed when another heavy rain hit this capital city in January. Jean Noel Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. South Sudan's Minister for Gender, Child and Social Welfare, Gemma Nunukumba, has called on women to form strong coalitions and alliances to ensure that their voices are heard. Nunukumba says this will also ensure that they speak in one voice. She was speaking at the African Peer Review Mechanism Forum on the sidelines of the Global Gender Summit in Rwanda, Kigali. Ntlantla Matlang caught up with her. This summit, first of all, is the first summit, uh, Global Gender Summit in Africa, which is a good thing, you know, bringing that issue back to the continent. And uh, also being held in a country which is leading in gender equality and uh, women empowerment, women and girls empowerment. So the venue in itself is well placed, you know, given the uh, Rwanda as a country that is leading. 
in the world. 61% representing parliament, over 50% in cabinet. So that's excellent. And um, as a country also, that is a new country and a country coming out of war. So the topics, women, peace and security is very relevant to our situation. Considering that we have come out of conflicts, we have negotiated, we have signed peace agreement, and now uh, we would like to ensure that women participate effectively in its implementation, as they also participated in the negotiation. So uh, we are learning a lot of things, especially from the experience of Rwanda, in terms of uh, the role of women in peace building, at all levels, both at the national level and then at the grassroots level, in all spheres of or political uh, dispensation in our respective countries. Now we've just attended a forum by the APRM where you made an appeal to women to come together to raise some of the challenges. Let's talk more about that. Why is it so important for women to come together to put their views or their points across? You know, unity, the unity of women is very important because women have common agenda. The issues of women is the same. Whether you are a woman from civil society, you are a woman in the government. The impact of conflict on women is the same. And that's why women need to come together, to have one voice. Because uh, in most cases, when women go to negotiation, they talk from the perspective of their respective groups or parties without due consideration to the fact that the issues we are talking about is about women, not women in the, politi- in the ruling parties or women in the opposition. So that's why the unity of the women is required. And because in our countries we have many different women groups, and for them to have a voice at the negotiating table, they have to come together, maybe form alliances, coalitions, and have one voice. And that's what helped us in South Sudan. Women came together. They even went and raised funds from partners to support them to be at the venue of the negotiation. Because sometimes the government may have limited funds to sponsor the delegates, the official delegates, while the women themselves may not have enough funds to be there. But also there should be a political will from the leaders, like the government, for example, should have the political will to put women in the delegations, like it happened in our case. And then our partners also should have uh, should support us because if, for example, UN Women is talking about women participation, peace and security, they should provide the necessary funding to support the women, build their capacity, and support the women to be at the negotiation venues. So these are some of the lessons learned that uh, we can be able to practice in other places. So now, as I said, with this participation of women, and also the coalition, the women coalitions are now even signatories to their agreement. And they will be part of the monitoring of the implementation to ensure that what is provided there, for example, the 35% women's participation at all levels of government is implemented. And for me, as the Minister of Gender, it's also my responsibility to make sure that all the parties to the agreement should respect that provision. And my ministry will be one of the monitoring institutions that will make sure that in the, the government has nominated women to meet the 35%. And the opposition and other groups, uh, parties to the agreement also ensure that the 35% is reflected in their nominations and the formation of the cabinet and other levels of government. Just you, Minister, raising concern that women need to form coalitions to put their views and make their voices heard. Also just raises concern that women still face challenges and still have a long way to go. What more should African women be doing? You know, the challenges are still there. Challenges will always be there. 
But the most important thing, what do we do to overcome those challenges? Do we just need to sit back because we have challenges? I don't think so. We have to keep on talking. We have to, of course, gender equality is about uh, power sharing. And you know, sharing power is not an easy thing. But we have to work for it. Our constitutions provide us those rights. And we should use those legal frameworks to make our demands. Because it's a legal requirement. And we have, most of our countries have ratified some of the international instruments, protocols like the uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which talks about uh, women, peace, and security. We have the Maputo Protocol. We have the African Union Agenda 2063. And then we have the Sustainable Development Goal number five, which all calls for women's empowerment and gender equality as a fundamental requirement for sustainable development in the world. And for Africa to move from where it is now, it is high time that they have to include the majority of their population who are doing most of the work in Africa, whether in agriculture, whether home cottages or whatever. These are the people that are moving our economies. They just need to be empowered. That was the South Sudan Minister for Gender, Child and Social Development, Gemma Nunukumba, speaking to Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlangu in Kigali, Rwanda. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9, and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari and visiting Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte, have agreed in a meeting to continue to work together to improve bilateral trade volumes between the two countries as well as private sector investments. At a summit between the two leaders at the State House in Abuja, Buhari and Rutte also reiterated their commitment to the fight against human trafficking, appreciating the close collaboration between both countries in supporting the victims. Collins Atohengbe. The Netherlands Prime Minister is the third international figure to visit Nigeria within a week with messages of hope for Nigeria's development. The visit, though not the first by a leader from the Netherlands, it is by far the most far-reaching with a promise of interactive actions for the realization of the objectives of bilateral relations between both countries. President Mohamed Buhari was on hand to receive his guests with whom he held a closed-door meeting in which both leaders discussed a number of issues including the need to further expand the scope of relations between Abuja and Denmark, as well as security, in which the issue of the decreasing waters of the Lake Chad was given a prime thought. Speaking with State House correspondents after the closed-door meeting, the Prime Minister Mark Rote says, there is existing relations which will be of benefits to both countries. One of the focuses of this visit is the economic cooperation. Both Nigeria and the Netherlands stand to benefit greatly from this economic uh, cooperation. There are already strong economic ties between our countries. And I'm proud to say that the Netherlands is Nigeria's third biggest trading partner. 
Being a third biggest trading partner is something that took years to build, but then there are areas that need to be fine-tuned for the purpose of ensuring mutual benefits. That aspect for Nigeria is agriculture, which was its primary foreign exchange earner before the discovery of oil. One such area of agriculture is animal husbandry, the Netherlands area of specialization which engenders dairy product and will be able to meet the aspirations of Nigeria as it plans to properly situate its animal product sector in agriculture. Speaking after an initial agreement was signed at MENA in Niger State, North Central Nigeria, the Minister of State for Agriculture, Mariam Katagum, says she is impressed because the agreement will help Nigeria's drive to further its dream of diversification from oil. It's a very welcome development and uh, uh, from my assessment, out of the eight companies or so, almost half of them are in the area of uh, agriculture, agro-allied industries, which is uh, very important for our economy as we're diversifying from the oil sector. Speaking at the occasion of the bilateral talks, Nigeria's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Geoffrey Onyema, noted that issues of migration and visa issues between Nigeria and the Netherlands need to be reviewed upward and says Nigeria is poised to cooperate with the international multilateral system, especially for the purpose of ensuring all-round security. The multilateral system is uh, under challenge at the moment and um, we have a very strong interest as a government, as a country, to support the multilateral system, the United Nations systems, the international organizations, especially in the context of the peace and security challenges. The multilateral system between countries is no doubt part of the reasons why nation signs to visa and immigration cooperation which Nigeria has suggested Denmark looked into. Many Nigerians with eyes on foreign land may not have to do so if conditions at home are made attractive. This was the concern of the United Nations Deputy Scribe, Amina Muhammad, who, in her wisdom, has asked Abuja to work towards making home attractive for and to Nigerians. Hope is a commodity too many bright, ambitious young Africans are going to dangerous lengths to pursue. So we must support the conditions of that hope to flourish here at home. And in parallel, we must ensure that those who choose to leave can do so through pathways that reduce their risks to abuse, violence, exploitation, or even worse. The impact we can make starts by listening and by understanding. Scaling Fences aims to help us all do just that. And I commend it wholly to a very full global audience but let's start it at the local level. Local level is the reason Nigeria has constantly sought foreign assistance to revamp the effectiveness of the water level of Lake Chad, which has continued to witness a drop year in, year out. The decrease in water level has affected the socio-economic activities around the lake, which is bounded by three countries, Nigeria, Chad and the Cameroons. Mostly affected is pastoral activities, which is believed to be one major reason there is regular violent clashes between herders and farmers who now have to move their beasts about for greener pasture. The belief is that if the water in Lake Chad is boosted, incidences of such clashes will be reduced considerably and herders will be confined to their traditional environment. The success of this is dependent on the responsiveness of development partners both in economy and security. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengbe for Channel Africa News.
The fate of Stevens Mukhalapa, mayor of the Tswane Metropolitan Municipality in South Africa, is likely to be decided today during a council meeting. Mukhalapa is on special leave pending finalization of an investigation into alleged sex scandal involving him and the member of the Mayoral Committee for Road and Transport, Sheila Lynn Sekubuche. The EFF has submitted an urgent motion of no confidence against Mukhalapa to be tabled during the council sitting, but the DA will not easily give up. Maluti Obusing has more. It's been a difficult week for the Democratic Alliance in the city. Its mayor, Stevens Mukhalapa, is embroiled in a controversy that is likely to bring to a premature end to his political career. Over last weekend, an audio clip emerged wherein Mokhalapa and MMC Sheila Lin Singkubuya's voices are heard discussing work-related issues, including their colleagues, and being intimate. The DA swiftly reacted to this, and Mokhalapa and Singkubuya are now on special leave. According to Houghton DA leader John Moody, the pair voluntarily took leave of absence. Mr. Mokhalapa, as well as the MMC, on their own, applied for leave because they believed that it would allow the Federal Legal Commission a safer and more conducive environment in which to conduct the investigations. But some are of the opinion that by placing the two on special leave, the DA is trying to protect them. The EFF is the DA's coalition partner in Swani, and it looks like that coalition is going to come to an end. The Red Beret have brought an urgent motion of no confidence against Mokhalapa. The EFF says Mokhalapa was given an opportunity to prove himself, but according to them, he has failed dismally. EFF's regional chairperson, Moafrika Mabohwana, says Mokhalapa is not a suitable person to lead the municipality. We've always said that we are going to give uh, Mokhalapa a chance to prove himself uh, if he's a capable candidate to lead the city, but he has not done that. And let us not deviate away from the point that Mokhalapa has lied about the water in Amanskral. Once you lie as a public representative, you are basically broke, breaking your, your, your own oath of office. So he has broken his own oath of office. There's also an issue about deviations in the EC which amount to maladministration. But the DA says it will not easily give up the mayoral position. Moody agrees that the fate of the DA-led administration will be in the hands of both the EFF and the ANC. I cannot give you any assurance as to which way the EFF and, and or the ANC will be voting. But I can give you the assurance from our coalition partners and from a DA perspective that we are resolute and we will defend that emotional confidence in China. And in It will not be the first time that a motion of no confidence is brought against a DA mayor in the city of Tswane. The ANC has in the past attempted on several occasions to remove the mayor, even Mokhalapa's predecessor, Solim Simanga. But all the attempts were unsuccessful. ANC's regional chairperson, Koshi Maepa, says they will vote with the EFF this time around. When the motion is there, whether it's put by the EFF, whether by the PAC, the ANC has already long time upstream indicated their intentions that the DA must go out. So our position is very clear. When the motion comes that there must be removal of Mukhalapa and the whole DA out of our system, 
obviously the ANC will find that very favorable and desirable. The ANC and EFF seem to be in agreement that Makhalapa must go. However, no one of them have put up a nominee for the position of the first citizen of the city. The EFF has played a role of the kingmaker since the local government elections in 2016, but they now want to be king. I'm Maluti Ubuseng in Pretoria. An actuarial scientist at South Africa's All Five Holdings, Alistair Chabi, says Transnet's board overemphasized the estimated total cost or ETC of the 1064 locomotive contract more than the profitability of the project. Chabi says the original business model of the 1064 locomotive contract, which was calculated at 38 billion rand, was more reasonable than the approved escalated amount of 54 billion rand. It says the 16 billion rand increase in the estimated contract value was unjustified. Naledin Noble reports. Chabi says the estimated total costs or ETC was a small part of a number of other costs. He says the board would have been best served to look at the profitability of the project, taking all costs into consideration. Chabi says other costs included wagons, infrastructure and tax. Having looked deeper into the uh, business case, we realized actually it's, the ETC only makes up 20% of the costs. Um, the project is a lot bigger than this ETC, the board uh, might have wanted to look beyond the ETC and look at the profitability of the project. And that seems to have been addressed in one or two paragraphs, whereas ETC made up the remaining 80-odd paragraphs. And that memorandum is the memorandum to the board of Transnet at the time, on the 23rd of May, thereabouts 2014, uh, seeking approval for the increase of the ETC from 38 billion to 54 billion. Chabi says the original business case for 38 billion rand had already taken forex hedging and inflation escalations into consideration. Previous testimonies revealed that in 2014, former Transnet CEO Brian Mulefe had requested the board in a memorandum to wrongfully approve the inflated cost of the contract on the basis of inflation and foreign exchange costs. Chabi is responding to questions at the inquiry. We're happy with the mechanics of the model, in other words, how the model actually modeled, projected, and discounted uh, the cash flows. Uh, we're happy with the variables uh, employed within the model, the assumptions made up around the variables, of course, within the context of our mandate, one variable being the number of locomotives which we did not interrogate, we mm-hmm. took as is. We're also happy with 38.6 billion ETC. Chabi says a 41% increase of Transnet's 1064 locomotives contract was unjustifiable. He says an 11% increase would have been more acceptable. There was a need to increase the ETC, but not to the tune of 15.9 billion. So the 15.9 billion in its totality was not justifiable. That's not in justifiable. Yes. Okay. We concluded an 18% increase in ETC, and that is taken into account. Transnet engineering scope okay, would have been more acceptable as opposed to the 41% increase that we see in the memorandum. The 38.6, the 15.9 billion is uh, 41% of the 38.6. Okay, so we felt 41% was too large an increase. Should we come to the conclusion that Transnet engineering scope was irregular, an 11% increase would have been more acceptable. The hearing of Chabi's evidence has been adjourned until Wednesday, the 4th of December at 9 o'clock. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the United Nations peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo is investigating whether its troops killed a demonstrator in the eastern city of Benin. Benin has expelled the European Union's ambassador over political interference and U.S. President Donald Trump has signed into law a bill approved by the U.S. Congress in support of pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Arguments in the matter between South African lobby group AfriForum and the University of South Africa, UNISA, were concluded at the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein on Wednesday. AfriForum is challenging the North Gauteng High Court's ruling in favour of UNISA's English-only language policy. The Distance Learning Institution changed its language policy in 2016. AfriForum is of the view that UNISA's new language policy does not comply with Section 29.2 of the Constitution that says that everyone must be taught in the language of their choice. Ishmael Mudiba reports. Advocate Albert Cockrell, who is a senior counsel for AfriForum, argued that the University of South Africa failed to comply with its own rules and did not consult persons concerned before changes were implemented. Cockrell says at the University of Stellenbosch, Africans was not abolished but instead given a lesser role. Cockrell argued that when the university changed its language policy, lessons continued in both English and Africans. Advocate Cockrell said in this case, UNISA does not comply with Section 29.2 of the country's constitution. Cockrell further gave an example of the University of Free State, which wanted to abolish the use of Africans during its lectures. Africans' lectures were full of white students and English ones had black students. Cockrell said the university felt that this separated the students and that was their reasoning as compared to UNISA, which is a distant learning institution. UNISA doesn't rely on that reasoning and it can't rely on that reasoning because it doesn't have classrooms. So... The specter that haunted the Free State University going into a class and seeing racially divided classes simply doesn't arise in UNISA because the way in which students study is they sit at home and they're behind the laptop or they sit in a restaurant behind the laptop or they go to a library behind a laptop and everything is done over a distance. So the short justification given by Free State is not open to UNISA and we don't understand UNISA to rely on the Free State reasoning for that very reason. Meanwhile, Senior Counsel for UNISA, Advocate Matthew Chaskelson, says every decision was taken at the institution in line with the prescripts of the law. Chaskelson says the Senate and the University Council always deliberated on the decisions the university had taken over the language policy. A language policy is not the same as discontinuing medieval history because one goes to the Higher Education Act. Section 27, sub 2, and this is what one reads in the statute. Subject to the policy determined by the minister, that doesn't matter for our purposes, the council with the concurrence of the Senate must determine the language policy. 
policy of a public higher education institution. So the law of the land says it's the council that determines the policy, but it must do it with the concurrence of the Senate. And that means Senate must act lawfully. So with respect, we are not the busybody complaining about medieval history being discontinued. We are the body litigating in the public interest which says you didn't comply with the jurisdictional requirement in 27.2 because if Senate didn't act validly, then there is no concurrence and it has a domino effect on the validity of council's decision. Afriforum head of youth, culture and sports, Hank Marie, expressed his optimism after their legal team completed its arguments in the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein. Marie says it was necessary to appeal the matter in the Supreme Court of Appeal. The reason why we decided to appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeal is because we feel that the circumstances around the UNISA case is very unique. If you compare it to language policies and language cases that we brought before the courts, for example, if you look at the University of the Free State, um, there the issue was about segregation. Here you don't have any issues of segregation because there's no classes. If you look at the cost discussion Stellenbosch University used in their court case against Gelijke Kanser, here we also see that, that, that the issues differ. So we feel it's a unique case. That is why we, we do feel positive about our case today. Judgment has been reserved. I'm Ishmael Mudiba in Bloemfontein. South Africa's Health Minister Dr. Zuelim Kize has launched a fixed-dose combination antiretroviral called TLD in Umtualume in the Guazul-Natal province. The new regimen is believed to have fewer side effects and offers less resistance. Ugu is one of the three districts in the province that looks set to attain their UNAIDS 1990-90 target by December 2019. Nonjabulam Dungwa Makamu reports. The UNAIDS target focuses on 90% of all people living with HIV knowing their HIV status, 90% of all people diagnosed with HIV receiving ARVs, and 90% of all people receiving ARVs to have achieved viral suppression. To help other districts to reach this goal, at least by the end of 2020, the health department has launched the new ARV known as TLD. Health Minister Dr. Zuelim Kize. We have come to introduce a new drug. We're calling it TLD. Now, TLD is basically a replacement of a, in a combination of drugs. It's ineffective, but it's more expensive. But we get better viral suppression with the dolutegravir. So, for that reason, we've got this new combination that makes it easy to to uh, use the drug because it's got less side effects and it's more effective in suppressing the, 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 the virus and we would like to use it all over. We're just creating a caution only on the uh, mothers who might be pregnant in the first few weeks. It might just be something we don't want to encourage. In South Africa, about 7 billion people are currently living with HIV. 4.8 million of them are on treatment. The country is hoping to reach more than 6 million on treatment by December 2020. UNAIDS Director Dr. Molewa Mugabe says he is impressed with the progress the country has made in fighting HIV AIDS. So I can say without fear of contradiction that the first country ever to adopt the 1990 targets uh, was South Africa. And we would like to thank you for this leadership. And we want to thank the uh, South African government for continuing to, uh, to lead. Yesterday, uh, 
we launched the UNA's uh, World Report. And in that report, we announced that South Africa has actually passed the 5 million, uh, 5 million uh, mark of people living with HIV. The United and that report by Nonjabulo Mdungwa Makamu. It's 7.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The Foundation for Human Rights in South Africa has undertaken to partner with communities to tackle the nationwide scourge of gender-based violence by developing and piloting a community-centric model promoting community agency and ownership. The pilot model called Masibambisane builds on other existing models that take a zero-tolerance approach to addressing gender-based violence in various communities. The communities involved in this pilot are Orange Farm in the Gauteng province and Tonga in the Mpumalanga province, both of which are communities known for high levels of gender-based violence. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Rub. Rumbizai Chiduru from the Foundation for Human Rights. Rumbizai, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thank you for having us and good morning to the listeners. Now, how exactly does this pilot project seek to address gender-based violence? Uh, Thank you very much for that question. You know, we've been talking about how we have this problem and we need to address it and we really need to get all stakeholders and it's not just about government, but we need to get communities, we need to get everybody involved. So this pilot project is really a test of that to really get communities themselves to be able to do something, to be able to be the first responders in an instance where GBV incidences have happened. So really ours is to empower communities to understand what is GBV, what is it about, what happens when a GBV incident uh, happens, what is the first thing that a person can do, where can a person get help, and how can the community rally around behind this initiative. So it's really more about empowering communities to be able to, you know, really take, make solutions or create solutions, come up with solutions to really help within their own communities. So homegrown solutions that they can be able to assist people that have been affected by GBV because GBV is a problem that affects all of us. Now, why is it important to bring together communities in addressing gender-based violence? Because this is a scourge that has really taken over our country and we cannot sit and expect government to come up with all the solutions and come up with all the answers. We have to get involved. The communities have to get involved. The nature of GBV itself is so pervasive. So it's very, very important that we get communities to, to, to really be part of the solution. Briefly tell us about the workshop you had yesterday in the community of Orange Farm and how people reacted to this initiative. People were very, very excited. People were very excited to be part of this initiative. This is a community in which we have actually worked in with before when we last year and we first did a mapping exercise to kind of see the levels of GBV and we realized they were really quite high in these communities. So people are really coming on board 
and we had, you know, everybody. We had men, we had women, we had the youth, we had legal services, we had social workers, we had midwives. So it was really, you know, a really, a really good um, section of the community which really, really wants to help their own community, which really wants to make a change in their own community. And that was reflective by the attendance and even the participation from the members themselves and the willingness to really come up with solutions. Now, very quickly, just in wrapping up, why is GBV serious in the community of Orange Farm, firstly? And share with us some of the stories, maybe one or two, um, you're getting on the ground. And also bearing in mind that uh, um, just literally, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, um, you know, a young student was uh, violently killed in uh, the Limbobo province. And this is uh, a day before the launch of uh, uh, 16 days of uh, activism against violence against um, women, children, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a crisis in South Africa. It really is a crisis in, in South Africa. And, you know, when you look at the root causes of gender-based violence, which are the power imbalances between the genders, which are, you know, you really you find them rampant in, 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 in Orange Farm. When you look at, you know, gender equality, inequality, between the genders, it is really rampant in in, in, in in Orange Farm. And, you know, there are so many other contributing factors, the use of alcohol and poverty, and it really, it really contributes to the situation that is on the ground. So it's, it, 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 when you look at the GBV incidences in Orange Farm, it really, it, it tallies because you really get, are able to make the links when you look at the power imbalances between the genders, when you look at, you know, the levels of alcohol abuse, the levels of poverty, you know, it's just extremely extreme, it's extreme poverty. And those are really things that we, that really need not just a social, but a political solution as well. So we really need our, need our leaders to be engaged on this issue. We really need our leaders to be able to also, you know, come in and try to find out what are the political solutions that can happen to reduce the, you know, the inequalities, to reduce the power imbalances. I mean, Statistics South Africa just released a report uh, speaking to the inequalities, and South Africa is one of the countries that has the highest inequality in the world. Rumbizai, thank you so much for your time. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I would have liked to take this discussion even further. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's uh, Rumbizai Chiduri of the Foundation for Human Rights joining us on the line. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. The South African Parliament's Standing Committee on Public Accounts says it will undertake a visit to the SAA headquarters at Kempton Park, east of Johannesburg, on Thursday next week and will meet the board and others. The SCOPA action comes after SAA withdrew from last night's meeting at, a parliament, uh, at parliament in Cape Town. 
SCOPA had given SAA board until Wednesday to establish a clear plan on the company's finances and to determine when it will be able to present its financial statements to the committee. Committee Chair Mkule Kothlengwa. The committee then met today and took a decision to direct SAA to submit the required information by next week, Tuesday, the 3rd of December. The committee further then resolved to visit SAA next week, Thursday, the 5th of December. In the meantime, the committee will be involved in a process of engaging with the Minister of Public Enterprises in an effort to assist the process to move in a direction of the desired outcome. The World Wildlife Fund in South Africa is encouraging consumers to reduce the amount of waste this festive season. The conservation organization is seeking, or rather, is asking people to take their own usable, reusable bag to the supermarket and also choose other reusable, durable goods. Project manager Lauren de Kock. A lot of the products that we consume are designed with a linear economy, which means that it's made, it's consumed, and then it's just thrown away. And we need to shift that, we need to shift mindsets to say, we can't keep carry on throwing materials away. And I mean, that's what lands up here. This is what you can see here, just a few thousand households. The government of Malawi has called on truck drivers to call off their strike on December the 2nd, saying... Stakeholders were already looking into their grievances. Spokesperson for the Ministry of Transport and Public Works, James Chakwera, said a stage in the strike now would derail the ongoing talks initiated by the special task force mandated to look into the grievances. The truck drivers say they want to abandon their trucks in protest against their employer's decision to disregard the government-set minimum wage. The Central Bank of Kenya has signaled to commercial banks to cut their lending rates after it lowered its benchmark lending rate for the first time since May 2018. CBK's Monetary Policy Committee sitting for the first time since Kenya lifted a cap on commercial interest rates on November the 7th, cut the CBR rate to 8.50% from 9.0%. The lowering of the rate is expected to signal banks to cut lending rates to boost supply of credit and put money in hands of consumers to increase demand for goods and services in corporate Kenya that is cutting jobs on lower sales. Regional clearing and freight forwarding firms in Rwanda are seeking to improve the professionalism of the operations through a model bill on clearing and freight forwarders industry in the East African community. This comes at a time when there is a need to promote economic diversification and industrialization by linking economies and a need for strong organized customs clearing and freight forwarding community in the region. The bill was developed through an initiative by the Federation of East African Freight Forwarders Association. It's Channel Africa from an African perspective. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
And we begin with football news. Europe's UEFA president Alexander Seferin has told Russian President Vladimir Putin he's certain the country would do a good job hosting four European Championship soccer matches next year. Seferin was speaking during a visit to Russia days after a World Anti-Doping Agency WADA committee recommended Russia be barred from hosting major events. It said Moscow had been found to have provided it with doctored laboratory data. WADA officials have said Russia's hosting of four Euro 2020 matches, including a quarterfinal, would not be affected by the recommendation. And Lionel Messi marked his 700th game for Barcelona by scoring his 613th goal last night as the Catalans beat Borussia Dortmund 3-1 to go through as group winners to the Champions League last 16. Messi celebrated his anniversary in style by putting Barca two up before halftime between laying on a pair of assists for Luis Suarez and Antoine Griezmann in a comfortable victory at Camp Nou. And in rugby news, junior Springbok assistant coach Bafana Ntlego, who will fulfill that role with the South African under-19 team, departed for Georgia yesterday, says they had set clear goals on what they wanted to achieve from the tour and that they were excited to see the players in action. The South African under-19 team, under the guidance of junior Springbok coach Shinru, will play two matches against the Georgia under-19 team on Monday and Thursday in the country's capital, Tbilisi. And the squad wrapped up their preparations at the training base in Stellenbosch today, and Nkrego said they were ready to begin the journey. South African cricket side Nelson Mandela Bay Giants suffered their first loss in this year's edition of the Mzansi Super League when Pearl Rocks beat them by 31 runs at St. George's Park in the Eastern Cape Province last night. As a result of the win, Pearl Rocks have moved to the top of the MSL standings with 19 points, same number of points as the Port Elizabeth franchise. Giants captain John John Smarts has admitted that the Rocks were the better team in betting, bowling, and fielding. We were definitely off the mark in all three disciplines, batting, batting and fielding. Um, I think with the ball, we kind of showed patches. You know, they got off to a good start, brought it back unbelievably well. They kind of got going a little bit in the middle, brought it back again. And I think what the last two, three overs, probably we felt we probably didn't execute our plans well enough. We th I, th I thought at one stage, 150, we would be chasing. Um, and then obviously they, they really whacked it, I think, in the last two, three overs. Um, that's cricket. Um, you don't always execute your plans. And, and again, we've got to bounce back from this. Having lost in their first match of the campaign, Smart is looking at the Giants bouncing back when they meet Devin Heat away on Saturday. And then just with the bat, uh, you know, the, the wicket was still a good wicket. Um, I think we just really lacked a real big, big partnership. And again, we missed a little cameo somewhere where someone's gone 20 or 8 balls or something like that really to give us momentum. You know, I thought if you look at in our 20 overs, things just didn't go away. We maybe in a few other games, they have gone away. We've hit a lot of fielders today. I thought we were really unlucky with that, you know, but the nice thing is we learned from this. And, you know, this game always keeps you on your toes. And, and, and we're going to look to really bounce back big in our next game against the Durban Heat on Saturday. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories on Africa, Raz and Shana Dasawa, floods kill at least 41 people in the DRC's capital, Kinshasa, and South Sudan women urged to form strong coalitions and alliances. That wraps up Africa, Raz and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pamutura Mangaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our for the news is Black Coffee with a song titled Booyah.